Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Brought to you in part by International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and Maine Operation Game Thief. Warden's Watch, Episode 88, Terry Hodges, former California Game Warden. Lieutenant Terry Hodge, award-winning author and retired veteran of over 30 intense years as a game warden, brings this to his books. And what a great interview we had, John, with, with Terry, uh, just uh, getting to the background, getting to the saber-tooth days, talking about his Warden Force series that I, I inspired you, uh, I, is my understanding. Yeah, yeah. Terry is a warden hero to so many. Um, I knew him at the start of my career way back in the 90s. I got his actually a, his first couple of books in the academy hmm. and then um, collected all of his books after that. And yeah, he was an inspiration to us all, man. He was a go-getter, you know, no holds barred, not a windshield warden like we talk about. He mm-hmm. knew Butte County in Orville where he was the game warden really, really well. In fact, ironically, when he retired from that position, all the poachers kind of knew it and they started getting out of control in his old area because he really kept a, he kept a lid on it. And then my good partner and, and, and brother from another mother, Mark Imsdahl, 
you know, a captain now in the cannabis enforcement program um, back in California, what it is and was based out of Orville. And he came in behind Terry and had to clean that place up. And Terry was a hero of his as well. And he said, I'll, I'll try to clean house, man, and get it back to get it back to a pure county like when you had it. So no, Terry's awesome. He had some great stories to share during this podcast and his, uh, his fire for life and just his, his passion for all things conservation has not waned in the least no. since he's retired, as you know. So this one's uh, really, really fun near and dear since it's a California brother. Yeah. Um, and one of, one of the legendary guys that, uh, that, that gave us all inspiration starting off when we were pups in our careers. Yeah, no, uh, I'm hoping we're doing the same thing with, with these podcasts as Terry did for you in, you know, writing it down. His passion, you're right. At his age, it's just amazed me how much passion he still has the job. Uh, I just can hope I, I can say that when I get to his age, I still have the passion, which I, I think I will. I think it's instilled in each and every one of us. Once you get it, it's hard to get rid of. Episode 88, Warden's Watch. Thank you for listening. And share it with your friends, for sure. If you like Warden's Watch, I'm sure your friends will. Here we go, Terry Hodge. On this episode of Warden's Watch, we are with Terry Hodges, former California Game Warden of 30 years and author of The Warden Force. Thanks for joining us, Terry. Uh, I'm really excited uh, to have you on and uh, to, to, to hear all your experiences. And I'm trying to think, you are our first Game Warden author I think we've had on, so I'm I'm really excited about that, and uh, hopefully it'll continue a trend. Oh, I hope so. I yeah. hope so. It seems like a lot of game wardens like to write. I'm not one of them. That's why I'm I do a podcasting just to, to let everybody know. <laughs> well, you know, to to be a writer, you have to have something to write about, and ours is a colorful profession, mm. and uh, there's lots to write about. So I think a lot of us just get inspired to to save these bits and pieces of uh, history and put them on, on pages. So they'll last forever. Yeah. You're basically documenting what has happened and you're right. It's been a colorful career for me and it seems to be a colorful career for a lot of game wardens and to, to put that, you know, down for a permanent record is yeah. It's great to pass it on to future generations to document these poaching cases uh and the trends too because things ebb and tide geez the moose in the northeast we used to be in new hampshire we had a huge resource of moose and now we have winter tick coming in and our moose populations are plummeting but that was the busiest day of a game warden i ever had was moose season it was just i calls pending i never had calls pending terry and i had calls pending during moose season so moose cases well i i never had to deal with moose in in my district (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but everything else it seems like mm. so when did you start mm. writing uh let's let's go back uh and uh to talk about your first book that you ever did and what what inspired you to do that well i was lucky i uh i became a warden and uh short about four years into my career i transferred to the city of chico where there was a retired game warden there his name was gene mercer uh they called him old saber tooth and he was an absolute legend he started work in 1928. He worked for, I think, 32 years. He wore out a patrol vehicle every other year. He made great cases, and he just uh, he just was a hardworking, hardworking game warden. And uh, he was real critical of other game wardens who weren't that way. And so I remember when I arrived in Chico and met him for the first time, 
he regarded me like I'd come courting his daughter. I was going to be the warden in the area where he lived. And as it turned out, I ended up taking him with me. I'd take him with me on patrol. The first time he was with me, it was the opening day of deer season. And uh, that's a real busy time, as you know. And so I expected him to just sit quietly in my patrol vehicle and watch while I checked hunters. And uh, that wasn't the case. He became a game warden again uh, after being retired over 16 years, I believe. And he was out on every stop with me. To my surprise, he was checking rifles to see if they were loaded, things like that. And he had such an air of authority about him that nobody questioned him, least of all me. We worked hard. And he, thinking back on it, I thought, well, I'm with an old man and look what he's doing. Well, he's the age, probably, he was the age then that I am now. So I can relate to to what he did. And, um, anyway, he was good help. And I learned so much about him when uh, I was going to look for bear hunters for some particular reason. He would say, well, the choke cherries are getting ripe. We want to be uh, in this area because that's where the bears are going to be. And, and he had that kind of stuff that he would constantly teach me about. So you decided to write a book about him. Well, it started out that um, when I was on patrol with him and I took him with me, he was telling stories from the time we drove out the driveway till the time we got back. There was these wonderful tales of game wording in in the old days during Prohibition. Wonderful stories. And and, uh, I and other wardens who knew him. I was aware of all of these stories. And so I thought, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some notes on these stories. So I started uh, just kind of interviewing him on some of those stories. And I took notes. As I took notes, you know, my notes gradually became a little more elaborate and a little more fleshed out. And before long, I found myself taking some pleasure in seeing those words on paper. So I started buying books on uh, writing. And as I, I tallied him up one time, I read like 22 books on writing and I essentially taught myself how to write. I started writing those stories and I, I had a wonderful time visiting with him. And he had a lady friend that he'd known for years. The, Mrs. Coleman was her name. She had a beautiful house on a hilltop in the country. And we'd meet there often and I'd interview him and write those stories. I, I remember those times fondly got this huge collection of stories. I thought, you know what? I've got enough for a book. Yeah, no, that sounds like a, an, an epic thing to do, to, to, to meet and start recording all of those. And point, did you decide to write your first book? Well, it, it happened like this. I'm, I'm working on those stories, and it was in my mind. And one day, my wife at that time asked me uh, what I was going to do, and I, I said, I'm going to go and work on my book. And she says, so you're writing a book? And I said, I guess so. And, uh, <laughs> so then I started investigating what you did when you wrote books and how you got them published and all that kind of stuff. So I learned how to write a query letter to publishers and send uh, book proposals. And I did all of that. And I sent proposals to three publishers and got positive uh, results from two of the three. Mm. I ultimately signed up with one publisher and uh they they published my first book Sabretooth Sabretooth was my first book it is it's a real thrill to get a package in the mail and it's a book that you wrote 
Mm. But it was an even greater thrill to take that book to Gene Mercer, uh, who did not have long to live at that time, and uh, present him a hardbound volume of uh, the stories of his career. And uh, that was that was uh, very rewarding, too. Oh, I would imagine. So, anyway, that published the first book. I was not happy with the royalties. You know, I got practically nothing. <laughs> and the, the, everything went to the publisher. You know, when I finished Sabretooth, I thought, well, now I can write. And I felt compelled to continue writing. Mm. So I started writing some of my own experiences. And I had a tremendous career. I always had... Uh, things to write about. So I started writing my own stories and compiling those and started thinking about publishing a second book. But I thought, you know what? That publisher is nothing more than a, a contractor. He contracts out the printing, the cover artwork, the editing. He, he did all of that. I wrote, spent all that time writing the book. I got 10% of uh, the take of that book. I thought, you know, there's something wrong with this. So I became a publisher myself. I learned how to contact artists for cover work. I, I contacted printers and, and found out who would give me the best deal on printing the book. And uh, I put the, the second book together. It was called Tough Customers. Mm. And I did that one entirely myself. Nice. And I continued writing those original books. And I did four of them. There, there were uh, three others after Sabretooth that were hardbound books. And I used to take those to the uh, big sportsman shows. We had uh, international sportsmen's expositions. I don't know if you have those back there. We do, yeah. But thousands and thousands of people would come through those shows, and I would sell tons of those books. Mm. I didn't have to split my profits with anybody. <laughs> so. Anyway, that's how, how I started writing. Now, as things happened to you, <clears throat> you would write them. So like if you had a case, you would sit down at the end and write it out within. Sometimes I would, but let's see, I started in 72. Mm -hmm. So when I started, after I finished Mercer's book in 88, I had quite a. You already had some uh, stories. I had quite a, a list of uh, experiences to write from. But I have to tell you, unlike most wardens who have families, kids to take care of, wives that you have respect. And I was married to uh, a flight attendant, an airline stewardess for most of my career. And it was the nature of her work that she would be gone for sometimes days at a time. I liked my job. I loved my job. I paid no attention to working eight hours a day. I never did until mm -hmm. uh, the day I retired. I just went out and worked and was constantly scheming how to catch the bad guys. <laughs> so uh, I didn't have kids to take care of. And, and uh, so I would just constantly out working because I have, because it was more entertaining than anything else that I could do. So I accumulated all these stories and so I had lots of things to write about. My second book uh, that I wrote after Sabretooth, Tough Customers, it was probably half of the stories in that book were my stories. But I had read books by other wardens, lots of books by other wardens. And I was struck by the fact that they almost always write in third person. I mean, in first person. It's I did this and I did that. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be talking about my own exploits, you know, under my own name. Mm -hmm. So I invented uh, the character James Halber, 
who is actually me in all my stories. And he, you know, I wrote about James Halber when he was a new warden and as he progressed through his career. So that's how I handled that problem. Nice. Nice. Y- your career started uh, pretty strong. I mean, you went, you were working, and if, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had like four years on and then you were promoted to lieutenant, which would be your first line supervisor in California. Yes. I actually uh, could have taken that lieutenant's exam after two years. I mean, I, I was a hard worker mm-hmm. and uh, I could have probably been promoted then, but I thought, you know what? I, I haven't paid my dues yet as a warden. And so I worked another two years and then took the next lieutenant's exam and promoted them. Mm. And did that make you mean you had to move around into a different area or you got to no. stay in the same area you were in? As it happened, I had transferred. It turns out my wife did not like the area where I was. My first duty assignment was uh, the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta area. And that is a fascinating uh, area to, to start your career. Yeah. I loved it and she didn't. So she wanted to move anywhere but there. So I took a transfer to uh, farther north in California at the base of the Sierra Nevada mountains in a little town called Orville is where we lived. And I had been there just a short time when my promotion came through and I promoted to lieutenant. And I learned at that time that as a lieutenant, you could still work in the field with your wardens if you wanted to. Mm. Uh, a lot of them, I'm sorry to say, just to retired to their desks, but I never did. I hated desk work. I continued working. I was a field man, and that's what I did for almost 30 years. Well, over 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the last two years of my career were, I ended up with supervisors that we, we didn't agree, and that was problems for me. And so the last two years were hard for me to do what I'd always done. But I, I was doing game warden work on the day I retired. Nice. Well, what's one of your favorite saber tooth tie, saber tooth uh, stories? Because I, I just I don't want to leave that yet because I, I find that very nostalgic and very uh, inspiring <clears throat> that a young warden took it upon him to take all these stories from the a previous warden and just compile those. And I just uh, I really like that. So before we move on to you know your books and uh, the series and everything, I really you know one of the the most inspiring. Uh, maybe stories that from, from your first book. Inspiring stories? Well, I'll tell you a funny story that everybody seems to enjoy. I like funny All stories. Right. <laughs> we're driving along one day up in the mountains. We're up in the high Sierra mountains, and we're driving along, and he said, uh, that's where old Frenchie lived, points to a cabin up on a hillside. And he tells this story, and it was hilarious. The uh, This happened in about 1930. And they had a really bad winter and uh, it snowed for days and, and the roads were closed. Everything was shut down. And Mercer was one of the first ones to go through that country. Now, to back up a little bit, he had befriended an old character. Um, he was a Frenchman that uh, received a pension that came from France for something. And he lived alone in that house. And Mercer used to help him, he used to drive him into Quincy, which was about 20 miles away, and and help him buy groceries and supplies and take him back. Uh, Frenchie had learned to, to rely on uh, uh, Mercer. So one day after that storm, Mercer was the first one to go through. He broke a trail on what is now Highway 70, was driving, following the power lines, and 
he uh, got to the place where he could see Frenchy's cabin up on the side of the hill and in the pine trees. And uh, there was no smoke coming out of the chimney. So he felt this immediate sense of foreboding because uh, there was no good explanation for that. Mm. And he thought, well, you know, he needed to, to go investigate. So he parked the, the, the patrol vehicle and hiked in knee deep snow up the steep slope to, to Frenchy's cabin. He could see no tracks at the front door of this cabin there. This cabin was large enough, actually had a back door. And he went around to the back door and was uh, unhappy to see that the, that the the back door, which opened into the kitchen, was half open. It had been that way for some time. So he went inside and, and uh, there was a half-eaten meal on uh, the table. And uh, he steeled himself to go back to the back bedroom because you know, he expected to find him dead back there. Mm. Went back, no Frenchie. So he thought, well, maybe he got sick. Maybe somebody took him in the town. So Mercer left the cabin and started walking down the hill uh, back to his patrol rig. And he th- then he saw the outhouse off to one side. He thought, well, I'd better check. So he hikes over to the outhouse, opens the door, and there sat Frenchie, frozen solid. Poor Frenchie had... Uh, cashed in his chips sitting in the outhouse <laughs> and he was in a sitting position a, a terribly undignified position with his pants down around his ankles and his knees you know he he was in a very awkward position to do anything with he was wondering what to do when uh, he heard a motor and it was a power company lineman was checking lines and he flagged the guy down and told him the situation they had a man that had died the lineman climbed a pole and somehow tapped into the telephone lines and notified uh, the coroner in the town of Quincy that um, of the situation. So the coroner, the coroner came. They had a heck of a time getting Mercer out of the outhouse. They almost had to tear one part of it down to get him out. He was so in such an awkward position. So they got him out and carried him down to the coroner's vehicle. And then they faced the problem of how are they going to put him in here? Remember, he was frozen solid. They opened the back door of this thing that was could only be used by people who were in the prone position. And uh, they tried him various different ways and nothing worked. And they're, they're really puzzled over what they're going to do. And, and uh, the attendant, the coroner's attendant, said something kind of in jest. Why don't we sit him in the front seat? You know, he's in a, he's in a good position for sitting in the front seat which was true. So they opened the front door and, and stuffed him in the front seat, sitting upright. And that's how he made his last ride to town <laughs> and frozen solid. And he were driving through town with that guy frozen solid in the passenger seat. And uh, I, I titled that story, Frenchie's last ride. <laughs> so that was a story that, that uh, people seem to enjoy. I mean, Mercer had, tons of stories of uh he was a warden during the market hunting days and there were serious market hunters that would go out at night and with magazine extensions on their shotguns they would kill two guys would kill 400 ducks in a night Mm. and those ducks if you could get them uh, field dressed and sent to san francisco were worth about a dollar and a half Mm. and so those market hunters did well and Mercer was one of the ones that uh, that started working on that problem. There was a federal warden that did a lot in that area too. 
but Mercer was one of the 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 most successful of the guys that went after the the, the market hunters. And uh, I wrote a couple of stories about him uh, him uh, catching these market hunters, and sometimes they would run, and and uh, there was always some kind of drama involved. One of the cases involved geese. It was a a case where uh, two outlaws shot ground sluiced a, a big flock of of snow geese. And uh, in those days, this this country west of Oroville, this is the North Sacramento Valley. The, the, the big valleys in California grow about 25% of the produce for the rest of the country. And this was all rice country. And uh, the, the farmers had trouble of what to do with their rice stubble. So in those days, they would fence off those great big uh, rice plots of land where they grow rice. Mm. And uh, they would fence them and they would put hogs in them. And the hogs would, would eat the stubble. Well, those hogs were almost like wild pigs. And uh, Mercer makes this great goose case one night. He's, he's there. He's watching that particular flock of geese. And the bad guys show up and they killed a whole bunch of geese. And uh, so Mercer's going after them. The, wire, the pigs got into them and start eating the geese. And so Mercer's frantically trying to gather up geese and throw them over a fence before the pigs eat all his evidence. I mean, there's <laughs> lots of pigs. And so anyway, that was some adversity he experienced on that night. But he arrested these guys. One of them is an interesting character. His name was Snake McVeigh. He was one of the worst of the, of the outlaw market hunters. And Mercer ended up chasing him, this spectacular vehicle chase that went through the, the duck hunting country down towards Sacramento, finally got him stopped. And that ended in a great foot race. Mercer chased two guys and the other warden with him chased another guy and they tackled those guys and got them, got them captured. McVeigh ended up going to trial for it. And in those days, the sympathies of the juries were with the, with the outlaws. Everybody kind of, uh, they were kind of heroes among the local people and nobody wanted to see them convicted and inconvenienced in any way. In a previous case, McVeigh was simply, the jury found him not guilty for no good reason. So the second case ended up in, um, in a federal court. And even there, the jury found him not guilty. They found him with a trunkload of ducks on the way to, to uh, San Francisco. And yet he beat that. They, they didn't find him guilty. And he was on the steps of the courthouse in the town of Calusa, Northern California. And uh, he came out of that courthouse and was crowing about how he had beat the game wardens yet again. And uh, he had an uncle who uh, was this, who ironically was uh, a fish and game patrol captain. And he was tough as nails. His name escapes me now, but like many of the wardens of that era, they carried saps. They actually had pockets built in their uniform pants to accommodate a sap. And so he had a sap with him, and that, that's his uh, his nephew was Snake McVeigh. And anyway, he happened to be there when Snake was crowing to everybody how he'd beat the game wardens. <laughs> he walked up behind him and hit him with the sap and knocked him cold. That's how they did things during the Depression. And I'm not sure if everybody's going to know what a sap is, but if you can describe that, I, I'm pretty sure I, I know what it is. But it's the- okay. Uh, a sap is uh, it's a uh, 
it's a small club <laughs> to to sum it up. It's it's no more than I'd say ten inches long. It's probably uh, three quarters to an inch in diameter, and it's made out of leather. And the leather is wrapped around at one end a chunk of lead, so it's quite heavy and. It, it takes just a gentle tap with a sap will lay you low. Mm. And, and they the used Wardens to issue those, those in the 30s. Hey, I actually own that very sap. <laughs> I have it in a in a case of, uh, I guess you'd call them trophies and whatever, of uh, Mercer's career in my own. I have his old handcuffs, weird-looking old-time handcuffs, and his old camera. And I have a set of snowshoes he used. Oh, you want to hear something about Mercer? I'll tell you how he did winter patrol. Huh. Mercer, early years in his career, he was up in the high Sierras in the town of Quincy and uh, Portola. And uh, he, he shared those two districts. And uh, during the winter, everything was snowed in. So Mercer learned to use what he referred to as snowshoes. And uh, well, I guess all the wardens referred to them as snowshoes, but they weren't traditional snowshoes. They were huge skis. These things were um, about four inches wide, and they were like 14 feet long. And there was a, a mechanism that you could tie your foot into your feet into these things. And then you were on skis. And uh, they carried a single pole about four feet long. The pole had a big knot on the end of it, so that you could use it as a brake. And if you were going downhill, and you needed to slow your descent, you simply jam, you're kind of in a crouch when you're skiing, and uh, you would jam that that uh, stick into the snow between your skis, and it would slow your descent. And going uphill was uh, more of a challenge. Going uphill, they had what they called socks. There were these things made out of some kind of fabric that went over the, the front end of the skis, they allowed you to actually walk uphill in these long shoe skis. And so Mercer became uh, quite adept at using those. And uh, as this story took place, uh, Mercer finds himself in front of the big courthouse in the town of Quincy. That's an elevation of about 5,000 feet, somewhere in there. Beautiful courthouse. And uh, there's a storm coming and you see the clouds rolling in and he knows it's going to be probably a good big snowstorm coming. And he also encounters this guy that he knows is an outlaw. Now, Mercer knows that when it snows in the high country, the deer come lower and they, they have certain areas where they congregate in the valleys. And there was one a valley called the Genesee Valley that was like 15 miles long. And that was a place where the deer would come down in severe snowstorms. Well, the bad guy that Mercer encountered on that day was uh, he had a his his little cabin was or his little farm, I guess, was clear up at the far end of Genesee Valley. So Mercer, seeing this guy, came and approached him. He says, now, uh, I know there's going to be a lot of deer in your area. Leave them alone. You know, gave him a warning. And the guy just laughed at him and said, right, you know, what are you talking about? I wouldn't shoot any deer out of season. Mercer says, just remember my words. So the snowstorm struck. The snow drove the deer out of the high country. Mercer, that morning before dawn, had decided to go up and pay this guy a visit in his home habitat. 
So Mercer drove as far as he could and uh, ended up with about 14 miles he had to travel on skis, which he did. He set out in the early morning and he's trudging along up this valley, avoiding the very few houses that are in that area. Not a whole lot of people living up there. As he's getting uh, within a half mile of uh, this bad guy's house, I wish I could think of his name. Anyway, Mercer uh, encounters the tracks, fresh tracks of a deer. And so it happened to be the direction he was going. A little while later, he spots man tracks join the deer tracks. And so this man is obviously tracking this deer. Very soon thereafter, he hears this shot, which is terribly loud in the in the forest under those conditions. He uh, went farther in his snow skis and then took them off. He could see the guy's tracks. And so he got out of his skis and started walking in the man's tracks. And he sees the guy on the far end of a clearing gutting a deer. He's bloody up to the elbows and he's, uh, he's working on this deer. Mercer was able to get very close to him before he announced himself and scared the dickens out of this guy. Anyway, caught him red-handed, and the guy was astounded that Mercer could be there. And it was things like this that gave Mercer the reputation of being, you don't want to count on him being home. You don't want to count him on him not being where you are because he's very likely to show up. Mm. And that in itself probably saved a lot of wildlife, that kind of a reputation. But anyway, he arrested this guy and made a good case in the snow. Before it was over, Mercer, using his long shoes, he had a bad wreck one day going downhill. He lost control and crashed, I think, hit a tree, and he was knocked cold. And when he woke up, he was so stiff and hypothermic, he was almost dead. He was able to get himself out of there and get back to his car. But it scared him to death. And, uh, you know, he's, he thought, you know, that's a chance I don't want to take anymore. So he kind of reduced the amount of uh, long shoe skiing he did from that time on. Mm. So oh. that was a, a winter case. And, uh, you know, he did, um, he did lots of deer cases. Uh, he, he was there during the years of prohibition. So he got to know the, the whiskey moonshiners. And he found out you don't want to abuse these guys because there's too many of them there. The public like them. And he found that if you befriend these guys instead, they become your allies. You can sit, sit with them and they're nice, warm by their nice, warm fires where they're distilling whiskey and you can look for bad guys. And so he did that and he made good cases that way. Mm. He, um, he would catch these, these guys in the, in the back country. Some of the moonshiners were outlaws and, but the, but Mercer had told them, hey, you leave you leave the wildlife alone, and I'll leave you alone. And that was pretty much the case. But some didn't, and he made some some good cases. There's a story I wrote about called Stakeout at Trumbly's Still. <laughs> that that was one of those cases where he made a nice deer case. One of my favorite cases about him making a deer case was uh, farther up, even higher in the high country, and there was an area where. He had heard that deer were being killed and sold. It was an area he he had, in those days, they worked with their own vehicles. He had an old Model T car or something, terrible old car that he patrolled out of. Anyway, he went to, to check this area out, and he had to go through a series of about eight gates. 
open a gate and you have to, as you know, you leave gates the way you find them. So he was in and out twice to get through a gate. He made it all the way up into this country where it heard the, of the bad stuff happening. And he encounters this big touring car coming out, fancy car, top down, a man and woman in the front and uh, two young girls in the back seat. Mercer's not in uniform. They, they worked out of uniform in those days. He, uh, he stopped them and feigned uh, ignorance of the area and was going to ask a question. And then the guy was, as Mercer was approaching the vehicle to talk to him, the guy uh, was telling him, stay back, uh, stay back. Mercer ignored him and went to the car and notices that there's a, uh, something in the back seat under there, in front of the back seat. But uh, at this time, the guy pulls a gun. The guy's got a little pearl handle 38, beautiful little gun, as it turns out. He pulls this gun. Well, Mercer saw it come and beat him to the draw, actually um, knocked the guy cold with his own gun, <laughs> with his gun. And so now the women are screaming. The guy is unconscious, but coming to, and he notices the that under the feet of the, of the girls in the back seat is a deer wrapped up in a, in a big grain sack. He makes this case, but now he's got the, the problem of what to do with this guy. You know, he's going to, he wants to take him in, get him back to town. Uh, he can't, the guy's hurt and he can't leave, uh, just let him drive out of there because he's in a car that's much faster than Mercer's. And so Mercer takes the wife in his car. So Mercer's got the guy's wife in his car when the guy's uh, able to drive. And so the guy with the two little girls is in one car, the big open touring car, and Mercer's in the other. So as they're going down the hill, Mercer, through all of these gates, pretty soon the woman starts volunteering to open the gates. So she gets out, opens the gate, Mercer drives through, and then uh, then the guy in the, then the guy in the touring car drives through. And so they're going through these gates with the woman opening and closing the gates, and they get to the last gate. The woman opens the gate. The uh, Mercer drives through. The, the touring car drives through. And as he drives through, the woman hops on the running board. The guy guns the engine, swerves around Mercer, and he's gone. He's in the wind. Mercer has no way of catching up with him in that horrible old, old uh, car of his. So Mercer's in total frustration, and he, and he notices, well, he had the guy's gun. And, and at that time, wardens had to buy their own guns, and Mercer had a terrible old pistol that he carried. But now he had this beautiful 38 <laughs> with pearl handles, and he carried that for several years. Wow. So anyway, he, he learned that, that uh, the bad guy was a doctor from Nevada. We had problems up in that country with people driving from Reno and Nevada citizens, and they would hunt in California with no license, hunt and fish. So that was a lot of his business that that he dealt with. Anyway, that the the guy was a doctor and he was so upset by the, the whole thing, he moved back east. So, <laughs> so anyway, you I can tell Mercer stories all day long. He was an interesting character, and I feel so honored to to have known him. When I was working with him, he would help us. He he would uh, drop us off places. We could go after duck hunters and not have to worry about leaving a patrol vehicle someplace mm. that they could find. Uh, Mercer would drop us off. He would help us that way. Nice. And he be became a member of the Fish and Game Commission. He made 
he was a part of a commission that made choices of how money would be spent in uh, in Butte County, where where he lived at that time. And so he he always had uh, something to do with protecting wildlife, even even uh, in the last couple of years of his life. Interesting character. Yeah, no, interesting first book, and uh, yeah, the old saber tooth. I love the the, the nickname, and uh, for your first book, that was uh, pretty epic. I would say uh, to, to have somebody to write about like that. Yeah, it was it was inspiring. It made made for easy writing. Yeah. But on to the Warden Force, which is, uh, you know, your, your current series, right? Yes. It's a, a nine-book series, and these are collections of short stories. Writing the Gene Mercer Sabretooth book, I learned to write short stories, and uh, there are tricks to it. And, I, you know, I learned. And, and so that remained my uh, format. I just wrote short stories. Sometimes they were about me sometimes there were about other wardens and as i told you when i wrote about me i used a, a fake name mm-hmm. so i wrote in in third person after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers if we've learned anything it's that there's always a catch so when i heard that mint mobile wireless plans are 15 dollars a month when you purchase a three-month plan i thought what's the catch but after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. But uh, <clears throat> there, those collections of short stories, there are now nine of them. And collectively, they're known as the Warden Force series. And so you see on these books, you see Warden Force in large letters at the top of the book. And then each has a subtitle, like book one is called Night Rider. They each have uh, a, a subtitle which differentiates them. And as I said, there's nine of these books now. Mm. And, and your I, last and book, I, what's the name of your last book? The Worst of the Worst is the last one. I did something I've not done before in that book. I, I now write for International Game Warden magazine. So I've been looking for, I, I thought that they would want shorter shorter material to publish. And I, I have a column called Bits and Pieces. However, more and more, they've just become longer and longer stories. <laughs> but uh, 
So I started writing for them. And since I perceived my audience with International Game Warden as being uh, much uh, mainly uh, game wardens or conservation officers or game rangers in Africa or all of the places that uh, people buy that magazine, uh, since they're mainly law enforcement game warden types, I, I write in first person. I've written three stories, which I'm writing to them, you know, and mm. so I've had fun with that. So that's the first writing I've done where I'm writing actually in first person. Yeah. But have- that's in the last book. All the rest of them are, are just short stories. Uh, the farther you get into my Warden Force series, the fewer stories are that I actually experienced myself. But there's plenty of good material. There are plenty of good game wardens in California. And I draw from them and, and write stories about really interesting things. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Can you share one <clears throat> of those stories that's, that's pretty current that uh, you, you've written about? Okay. And I guess I shouldn't use the word very current. I mean, I, uh, one that sticks out in your head. that, it, And I know how it is because there's so okay. many of them, Terry. As, as a matter of fact, as you're talking, uh, when you when you talked about Frenchie, it, it just kind of cracked me up because we had a similar situation where we had done a search and rescue mission and we were on top of a mountain and the, the person was deceased and they were in rigor and we had a state police helicopter land. Well, the state police helicopter isn't really equipped to sit anybody in, like you said, vertically. <laughs> So the person was set in the state police helicopter in what we would call the passenger side uh, there as we took a photo in front of the state police helicopter on this on the top of the mountain. Well, little beknownst to us that state police puts out a calendar every year. So they took a picture and they put it on the state police calendar. Well, lo and behold, you know, all of us in the picture knew that you could see the guy sitting in the state police helicopter and he was dead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that calendar went far and wide, as you would imagine, all over the state of New Hampshire as a state yeah. police calendar. And there was a little inside information when, when you get that calendar. But uh, we all had a pretty good chuckle about it because you could clearly see that there was someone in the helicopter. Just nobody knew that it was a, the deceased person that we were up there for. So, <laughs> But that reminded you know me of Frenchie. It, it, it amazes me that here, here we tell... I have a story and you have one to match. Just different circumstances, just, different place. Just a little and bit you, different. You, <laughs> as we talked earlier, you told a story about a gator in a bathtub case. Well, as I told you, I have a gator in a bathtub, bathtub case. Yeah. Except mine, mine was a South American caiman, about four feet long in a bathtub. So we parallel careers. We come up with the same types of stories yeah i think we run into the same similar situations and they they have a little twist here and a little twist there for sure so i will tell you you asked for a story i will tell you one that uh, was recently published in international game board uh the story is titled death on snake mountain and it's one of the ones that i experienced and uh i became a pilot early in my career i fly like planes and uh i finagled a way to uh use part of the fish and game fine money half of in California, half of the fine money goes to the County where the arrests were made. And it has to be spent in some way to protect or further wildlife and benefit wildlife. And so I, I was able to talk him into spend money on airplane rental so I could rent airplanes 
and fly mostly at night and spot bad guys and talk my wardens into them on the ground. Mm. It was a wonderful tool. And uh, I made great use of that. But uh, one night I'm um, in an airplane high over the Sierra mountains. And uh, I hear a call come out from Butte County Sheriff's office. Uh, that's the County where I worked out of mainly the dispatcher was requesting a warden to respond to a very remote place, uh, mountainside up in the mountains called, well, it was called Snake Mountain. Apparently, they, the sheriff's office had a house that uh, had a dead body in it, a, a, a dead man that had been dead over two weeks. Unfortunately, they had discovered that the house was full of rattlesnakes. It turns out the guy was a herpetologist and collected rattlesnakes. That was his specialty. And the whole house was full of terrariums and, and rattlesnakes. So anyway, that's how uh, the guy passed away. I mean, he died somehow in that house. The information we had was we didn't wasn't know how he snake died. bite, was it? Uh, <laughs> turns, out it turns out it wasn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Although, now that you mention it, it could have been. It could have been a partial cause. But I'll tell you the story, and you'll 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 see what I found. So, the the guy's brother arrived at his house. He hadn't heard from his brother in a long time, so he decided to drive up and check. He opens the door, and the stench from the house nearly knocks him down. And he sees live rattlesnakes at his feet, and uh, that he can see snakes, rattlesnakes in that house. He just flees leaving the door open and for some reason we've never been able to determine he didn't report this until after dark that night and by the time the sheriff got up there it was a, it was crowd midnight so the call comes in that they want a warden to come up and clear the house of rattlesnakes so they can investigate possible homicide or at least investigate this dead body the warden on the ground not far from that area, a guy named Leonard Blissenbach, very good warden. He was the one that took the call from dispatch, and they they informed him that they wanted a warden to come up and clear a house from rattlesnakes. I'm listening to this, and there's no response from Leonard. Now, I have to tell you, Leonard Blissenbach was almost totally fearless. He would uh, he would wouldn't hesitate to face any of the armed hillbillies with attitudes that we chased around. And he beat a path to the county jail with with bad guys, dope dealers, rapists on one occasion, you know, murderers. I mean, he he caught them all. With no, he was afraid of nobody. However, he didn't like snakes. He, he was one of those guys with such a fear of snakes that if you were foolish enough to tease him with a live snake, he would probably gun you down. <laughs> and so... Uh, I'm, I'm I can't blame him, Terry. I really can't yeah. blame him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I mentioned at the time that call came in, I was at 10,000 feet over this the mountains. And so Leonard is the only warden that's reasonably close. And I, I to spare him embarrassment, I can I can get there pretty quickly. So this is how the call went up. And I said, so I'll, uh, I'll take this call. So I landed the airplane, climbed into the patrol rig, headed for Snake Mountain. I was probably uh, at least uh, an eighth of a mile mile from that house up on Snake Mountain. I was downwind of it when I first smelled that dead body. And I got there, and here's the the sheriff's deputy, several of them, and they're 
there they tell me they can see snakes in there and so i went in uh could look in the front door. I saw no rattlesnakes immediately near me. And I looked in the front door and I could see this living room area. If you can imagine every wall in this living room with uh, wooden shelves, three, three tiers of them that uh, had big terrariums. Mm. Uh, and each one of them had sand and a little plastic igloo. That was a place for snakes to take cover in. And uh, I could see all of these terrariums and the fronts had been bashed in and uh, that's how the snakes were released. And so this was the environment that I had to go into. The, the place just reeked. It was, uh, if you can imagine that closed area for two weeks. Mm. So I had to go in there. And the first thing I did when I went in was did a quick walkthrough. This was a terribly cluttered house. And the next thing I noticed was not only was the living room, full of these terrariums but a spare bedroom was was full of terrariums the kitchen even had some terrariums in it and uh <laughs> only one room one major room of the house lacked terrariums instead it had wire cages full of rats and mice that he raised obviously to feed all of these snakes mm. so i did a quick walk through this of the house expecting to see snakes everywhere and i did not see a snake so I went through and turned on every light. So then I did a room by room search, an absolute nerve jangling search on hands and knees with a flashlight in one hand and an improvised snake hook in the other. And I'm looking under everything, I'm under, under all the furniture. As I said, it was terribly cluttered. So I'm sorting through piles of clothing and into the lower drawers of, uh, and and uh, expecting to see snakes. And, uh, to make the long story short, I saw not one snake. So I'm I'm relaying this information to the deputies outside. <clears throat> As I got up and I'm preparing to leave, oh, I didn't mention seeing the the dead guy when I went in the door. Immediately, I find the the guy dead on the couch. Now, if you can picture this, he is lying down on the couch, like comfortably reclined with his his feet crossed and uh, on his back with one arm extending out into the room. And he is just a seething mass of corruption. And there, there's a procession of, of maggots that are falling off of his extended index finger in the, in, in the front room. And it's just terrible. Just terrible. Anyway, I, I'm looking at him and I notice a baseball bat on the floor very close to him. And then I also notice that he has a plastic bag over his head. And it was, there was so much, as I said, corruption. It was even hard to see that at first, but it, clearly it was there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it dawned on me, this guy uh, has committed suicide before he died. Oh, I also noticed when I was in the rodent room that all the cage doors were open and all there was not, not a mouse or rat to be seen. I never did see one of those either. Mm. When I got up to leave, I noticed one terrarium the, the front was actually smashed, but it didn't deteriorate. The glass was still essentially holding together. And so I took the top off that terrarium, reached in and grabbed the, uh, the little plastic, the plastic igloo, lifted it up. And there was a, uh, a beautiful little rattlesnake, probably about a two footer. And it was a delicate shade of pink. So that was the only live rattlesnake I saw 
in the, in the whole house. And as I said in the story, I'd love to tell you that I st strode through the house stuffing venomous reptiles into pillowcases, but that didn't happen. I didn't see one snake. So anyway, that's... Yeah, that's, I'm thinking the trauma of going through that house looking for snakes. So that's okay. Every you know, time you picked up something, like you said, you expected it. It's great. Um. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting how that... Uh, here I am sitting here telling you that story. That that stench of that house revisits mm. me like it was yesterday. That ammonia and smell. It, it took... It took me days to 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 feel like I didn't have that smell embedded in my skin, even though my wife couldn't smell it. You know, to me, it was there. As yeah. I said, it took me weeks to get over that. Yeah. So anyway, if that doesn't gross you out, I could probably tell another story. No, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'm not a snake man myself, for sure. Uh, but no, I really appreciate that. And if... Uh, other people, you know, they want to get your Warden Forest books. How do they go about that? If you could share with that with us. Well, all of my Warden Forest books are available in all formats. You can buy them as ebooks. You can buy them as audiobooks. You can buy them as print-on-demand uh, softcover books. Or now, actually, they're not quite all in hardcover yet but that'll soon be the case. You can buy those books in hardcover mm -hmm. and uh, you can, you can buy them on Amazon is probably the easiest place to get them. As I said, there's nine of these books. And any uh, future plans to make 10 Terry? Actually, uh, as I said, the Sabretooth book was the first one I've written. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, what uh, I did as I took my original hardcover books and actually uh, reprinted them in two books instead of one. So they had new titles. And so for each one of those four original book or three original books, they're now in soft cover. It's two store, two books each. Well, I've never done that with Sabretooth. So this year, my project is going to be to make two new uh, print on demand books that are the Sabretooth stories. Mm. Not sure what I'm going to call them yet. So there will be Two, so there will be nine, or will be two more, eleven books in the Warden Force series at that point, and I, I find myself compelled to continue writing. I just, I want to write more. That's what I do. I'm a writer, mm. so as I could can't be a game warden anymore, I can at least be a writer. Yeah, write about it, and I talk about it. So, <laughs> thank you very much for uh, joining uh, the Warden's Watch podcast. Uh, we really appreciate it. Get our listeners out there and uh, engage with uh, maybe some reading, sit down and read some Game Warden books, some Game Warden stories, and you're certainly a great place to start. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you, Wayne. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. Thank you.
This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.